Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. We're back. It's another rescreening. I think we're over a year in at this point. Did we start last year with the rescreening in July? Ooh, that's a good question. Perhaps that feels about June? right. Probably. Yeah. Do you recall what our very first edition of uh, rescreening was on? Our very first edition of rescreening, I believe, was on Gone Girl. Oh, that's right. I was going to say side effects. I think that was the first batch. Um, side effects yeah, was in the right. first batch. I think Aaron Brockovich might have been after Gone Girl. That's right. And then yeah. maybe a history of violence and then right back into Soderbergh with side effects. He has got to be among like the most highly represented, uh, most represented uh, directors on Drinking the Movies. Uh, Way I up hope there. so. And um, I just stumbled across his edit of Heaven's Gate. Mm. Um, which is free to watch on his website, Extension 365. So uh, anybody interested, there's a, a movie that he never had anything to do with that he has now edited that you can watch for free. And it will be my first uh, viewing of Heaven's Gate ever, and it will be the Soderbergh edit. There you go. Recommendations. Right at the top of the show. Right out the gate. Um, there's some housekeeping to get in order. We have uh, happily become part of the Seattle Film Critics Society since we last spoke. Um, this is still true. a small formal announcement about that. A little bit exciting. Hopefully that turns into more um, early access and more timely content uh, or episodes that we're publishing or reviews that we're publishing. This is all true. Uh, they must have listened to the wrong podcast or something like that when they reviewed... The application, that's that's the Oh, I, only... I went in, I, I swapped it around, I, I, I linked back to, to film spotting, I, I linked it to, uh, you know, a bunch of New York, very high-level critic stuff. I, I backlinked you to all of Manola Dargis's reviews, so. People are going to listen to me and be like, I thought this was going to be a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and much smarter. Yeah. <laughs> So now we're on our like third batch of rescreening titles. Third batch. Say. We do this every six months. Um, and this is Yojimbo. I think, what did we end with? Uh, a Woman Under the Influence? Was that how we we just started that last batch? Or was I, that the I think, end? I think that was the conclusion of our second batch. Yeah. All right. So this is, this is uh, or maybe this is. Maybe Yojimbo is. Oh, no, I think you're right, actually. Yeah, yeah Yojimbo yeah. is the end of this batch of six, because we go every six months. And then the beginning of the next batch is our next rescreening title, which I uh, lovingly tried to force upon you, and you kind of accepted it, which is the adaptation of Stefan Schweig's 1922 novel, Letter from an Unknown Woman. Oh, no forcing, no forcing required. Uh, I am stoked. Looks pretty cool. This is... Uh, Another movie that I've previously seen, but I love it so much and uh, that I, I just wanted to study it, kind of go over it with you, reread the uh, the novel right before um, watching. So without further ado, why don't we do the first impression for Letter from an Unknown Woman before we get into The Bodyguard from Akira Kurosawa, also known as Yojimbo. Let's do it. 
By the time you read this letter, I may be dead. I have so much to tell you, and perhaps very little time. Will I ever send it? I don't know. I must find the strength to write now before it's too late. And as I write, it may become clear that what happened to us had its own reason beyond our poor understanding. If this reaches you, you will know how I became yours when you didn't know who I was. All right, Michael, that is the trailer for Max Ophel's adaptation of Letter from an Unknown Woman starring Joan Fontaine. What do you think? This is quite literally my first impression. I have not seen this one before, and I don't think I've seen any Max Ophel's films before, so he's kind of a big blind spot for me. He's excited to uh, check this one out. I'm very excited. I think it looks great. Um, I'm struck by the elegance, I suppose I would say. Um, I'm not familiar with the plot of the story. I haven't read the uh, uh, novella or short story on which it's based. Is that accurate? It's a short story or novella? I feel like it's short. <sighs> yeah. I, I always get confused with those definitions. I was actually trying to think of the proper term. I think that there's another one called a novelette. And I think that this would probably mm. best be described as a novelette because it's not quite the length of a novel, but it has the lasting power of one. Mm. It's maybe in that um, uh, anthem range of pages. If you're familiar with anthem or like animal farm, you know, mm. um, depending on the print, it can be anywhere between 70 and 120 pages. I think on Google earlier, when I looked it up, it said 146 pages. And I was like, that's a little bit more than I remember. <laughs> yeah. So I will definitely catch up with the source material ahead of talking about it. But um, yeah, I guess I'm uh, particularly drawn to Joan Fontaine. I do associate her with her role in Rebecca, which I really love, and I really love her in that movie. Um, I'm less familiar with Louis Jordan playing the male lead here. Um, yeah, looks like good stuff. What are your thoughts uh, about revisiting it? Um, I mean, I'm thrilled. I, I was honestly most struck by the trailer that like it doesn't show its best parts. Mm. I also like that it doesn't really give away the plot at all. Um, because if you give away the plot, especially the ending of the film... Um, you know, it's, it's kind of all out there if you read through it, but it's the journey along the way and the emotionality that takes you there. Mm -hmm. And some of the, um, the events that, that occur on, on certain times, but there's, um, there's particularly a sequence where, um, there's like this travel, you, you go traveling by taking this ride when really all that happens is like the background changes. And it's mm -hmm. just this sumptuously lit, beautifully staged piece and i couldn't believe that they didn't even show an image of it because it would give nothing away and it's like one of the greatest moments of cinema so i'm i'm honestly excited to revisit some of the what i think is one of the greatest moments in cinema and then familiarize myself with max ophels i also have very little familiarity i don't know if i've seen anything else from him i didn't check before we hopped on but um i'll definitely look into rebecca because that's another one i haven't seen yeah, just the, from this very short glimpse, the, the kind of opulence of it is kind of striking. There is this one shot of Joan Fontaine wearing this white fur coat that just looks like you could just like reach your hand deep into that coat. It's so uh, thick and, and lush. Um, really uh, beautiful looking film. I completely agree. Let's get to Akira Kurosawa's The Bodyguard, also known as Yojimbo. 
宿命の対決We're finally getting outside of our comfort zone. We've gone at least 12 months, I think, in the English language. Perhaps the closest we were to getting out of it would have been um, By the Sea, Angelina Jolie's film, where we're actually in Italy. Perhaps the Thin Red Line where, Mm. um, oh, I guess Perfect Blue might count. Perfect Blue does count, I suppose. Um, But there is a dubbed option, so... That's right. I would say I have, this is the first yeah. film I'll watch without a dubbed option. <laughs> I, yeah, I had not. That had not crossed my mind that the vast majority of our rescreens have been American language or American film or English language film, um, with the exception of uh, Perfect Blue. That's right. A good change of pace today with uh, Yojimbo, no doubt. Um, any other Kurosawas you watched ahead of time? As uh, just I only for got additional context, one. I only got to uh, Tehran. Um, I'd wanted to make more, but as you know, there's uh, Bentonville Film Festival, Fantasia Film Festival, and New York Asian Film Festival going on right now. Um, and I just haven't found the time to squeeze in quite as many. We've been on a more abbreviated structure here due to some uh, logistics in our timeline. So, um, it's been a little bit shorter. I think it's been about three, maybe four weeks at the most since we did A Woman Under the Influence here. Normally, we have a full month of uh, Saturdays to try to catch mm. up on stuff, but uh, not quite as much studying on this end. How about you? I watched High and Low a few weeks back, uh, but that's the only thing of his that I've seen recently. I saw Stray Dog earlier this year. Um, but I've seen a good handful of his within the last like few years, so he still feels kind of a lot of those still feel relatively fresh to me, like Rashomon or um, Throne of Blood. Uh, you know, all within like the last two or three years, I want to say, and they just they still seem to be quite vivid in my memory, so they still feel relatively fresh. Um, but this is uh, very much very much its own thing, Yojimbo, um, which was. Released in 1961, stars Toshiro Mifune in the lead role. Uh, do we want to set the table a little bit, story-wise? Yeah, yeah, set the set the table, I guess. Uh, a stray dog is wandering on screen. As uh, Kurosawa put it, um, one asked about Mifune's character, Sanjuro. Um, we see him kind of cajoling his shoulders back and forth and uh, maybe reaching up an errant index finger to scratch the back of his head. This is supposed to give us the impression that he has fleas. That is the mm. uh, sought for interpretation that Kurosawa was looking for. I did not think of that until he told me to. And then upon rewatch, I greatly enjoyed all of those moments. Um, and anecdotally, I believe that he'd seen Mifune do that uh, like randomly and then asked him, to bring that to the character and make that mm. kind of one of his things that he does, much like chewing on the toothpick. Um, mm. But he's walking along, itched. He uh, reaches a fork in a road that uh, ends up going at least five places, if memory serves. Um, there's some beautiful antique-looking highway stones. There's a perfectly staged stick on one of those stones in the center of the where these roads meet for him to pick up and throw in the air. And then he begins walking down one of them that the stick points toward. 
Yeah, I, I love this opening scene. I think the score, which kind of repeats a certain rhythm throughout, is is super compelling. Um, and I think some of those first few shots where we don't even really know who this character is, where he's coming from, where he's going, what he's looking for. Um, immediately, I think you get just a sense for the command of like space uh, compositionally. Because um, right as he reaches that fork in the road, you have this sense of width because um, the road's going left and right. But there are also these, you know, kind of tall... Um, there's this tall grass that's kind of giving the the, uh, the image this this vertical pull too. Um, so right away, I feel like you you kind of know that this is going to be a visually interesting movie. I completely agree. That's one of the you're bringing out two crucial things I think about this film and about him as a filmmaker is I number one the the stereo uh, phonic sound paired with the cinemascope mm. style is I mean it's as good as it gets in cinema. Those are my two mm-hmm. favorite formats when they're kind of put together. It's glorious. But then he's also layering these uh, latitudinal and longitudinal uh, objects that are naturalistic or with fit within the space itself. Um, I, I have Ron, uh, just a, a random scene from it, pulled up on my other monitor there. And if you look at it, you can clearly see in the foreground this, this gathering of individuals mm-hmm. pressed against a like tent-like... Um, side and then above that far deeper in the background is this mountainside and so you're getting this this um latitude and this longitudinal structure of within the film that's just consistent within yojimbo and it's it's part of the genius this is also showing us um you know a man wandering around trying to find where to go he is a ronin he is a uh, sword for hire without a master as a samurai essentially um, this is a turning point in Japanese culture um, the samurai are no longer um, farm hands or f- farm owners they're they're no longer beholden to the original master and merchants are beginning to kind of overtake things and that kind of sets the background for this um, I, I also think it's worth noting um, there was a, a great commentary done on the Criterion Collection, and I believe Stephen Prince did it. And he mentions um, Kurosawa's background. He, he was very into Karl Marx, and um, he actually tried to structure this as a, a conversational film about markets. And he created Sanjuro, who is Mifune's character, to come in and kind of, in a dreamlike way, clean up something that is entirely evil and then just uh try to move away from it (laughs) yeah um yeah i ordinarily am not a huge fan of um uh commentaries only because if i have the time to sit down and watch a two-hour movie i just want to watch another movie but this is the one case where i did end up doing the commentary um version of the criterion disc as well and would agree it's actually really um detailed and um illuminating um commentary very helpful um and just plain interesting um and entertaining i like stephen prince i think Mm -hmm. he said his name has just kind of a nice presence i do think there is kind of a real art to um uh video commentary for sure yeah he's clearly a a film historian not a film critic Mm, so that that really allows him to delve into situational truth uh, about the nature of the film and not have to be labored down by trying to be critical about it. 
Um, mm-hmm. And he's also not doing the buddy thing where you're not going to say anything bad about it and you're just going to re- like tell stories while drinking beer, which I don't hate, but that's what James Caan did in, in Thief, essentially, with his commentary. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. just was not nearly as uh, rife with with beautiful takes and meaningful um, conversation about all the different stuff that's happening in this Kurosawa film. Yeah. Um, I can carry the story forward just a bit, and then we'll kind of tie it back to some of those ideas, I think. Um, he, Toshiro Mifune's samurai, uh, takes the road to a town that he finds is sort of paralyzed by uh, division. It's been taken over by these two rival gangs um, who each have um, aligned themselves with a different um merchant in the town one gang is aligned with a sake brewer the other is aligned with a silk trader or producer um trader i believe in that commentary that stephen prince had he said something about how silk was primarily made by the farmer's wives i think mm -hmm. in the countryside yeah um nice anecdote mm, yeah um and so it very much becomes this uh uh, conflict about kind of the economic power within this town. It kind of plays out to me like this kind of miniature civil war, um, but with uh, a great deal of uh, comedy blended with the uh, social commentary and uh, action. Um, you know, I feel like if you do any even light reading about you know, Jimbo, you'll hear it um, talked about as a uh, comedy on one hand by some people, other people lean into its description of it as a Western. So maybe start with that super easy question. Is this a funny movie to you or not so much? Oh, that's great. Um, hmm. No, neither. I actually mm. read this as like one of the first kind of live action cartoons for adults. Mm. Like it's, it's in, incredibly cartoonish. The, uh, the steps, which Stephen Prince, um, spends great um, energy making sure that we notice where uh, this man is walking down the steps and the score is queuing and leaving cartoonishly right when he steps is so Daffy Duck and uh, Bugs Bunny. Like it, it's incredibly reminiscent of that. Like, And when I say cartoony, I don't mean Disney. I specifically mean those Looney Tunes, like where there's violence and harshness and like, you know, deep truths about the human soul, but also like, a giant guy with a hammer um, mm-hmm. who's pretending to be as scared as all his small, uh, uh, purposely ugly compatriots. Um, y- you know, like it's just cartoonish. And I mean that in the most like complimentary way. I mean that in the way that I would talk about um, who framed Roger Rabbit with love. Yeah. And I don't think that that is a pejorative description to just to call it cartoonish in some way. I think that's kind of, crucial to the critique in a way of both sides of this conflict being greedy and they're grasping for power it, it feels a bit um uh, uh like Kur- kurosawa is saying you have to be almost kind of ridiculous to think that this is actually a smart way to um you know exist in a society this is not how you uh you know live in a civilized place this is outlandish outlandish this is ridiculous um the old we live in a society line huh mm-hmm. yeah well uh 
you know, to the extent yeah, that it is a Western. I think that's one of the classic themes of the Western, right? Is the kind of uh, line between the civilized and the, the, West. the uncivilized. Yeah. Um, and I think he's very much underlining the ridiculousness of um, living in an uncivilized fashion. Um, and yeah, the dude with the big hammer is very cartoonish, no doubt. Um, Giant hammer. Way too big. I completely agree with you. You brought up the Western. Um, I, I wanted to steal this this great introductory from um, Alexander C. Sanskes. West meets East uh, essay included in the Criterion Collection. His first line is that, um, you know, well-hated line of film critics where you compare, you explain a film by... Um, referencing other films but i I do think Mm. that this is a good example of kind of what we're talking about here which his words are if we adapt the language of horse breeders to the genealogy of films we might write that yojimbo by shane out of scarface Mm, interesting and i i do think that he gets to that point i'm fairly certain he's referencing the 1930s Scarface here, mm-hmm. um, which I'm less familiar with, but I, there is that outrageous um, leap toward violence, um, but there is the deep human stakes that I think are present in Shane. Um, and then, you know, the, the cartoonishness, like, yeah, there's the big guy, there's the dog with the hand, one of the most yeah, memorable yeah. scenes in cinema, you know. Um, but I think there's a crucial layer that I I um, don't want to get too far past here in the introduction of the film as he's walking on that road toward that village he comes across a boy who is leaving his his home his family home his father is a farmer his mother is a farmer's wife who is making the silk that um steven explains to us is what many of the women did and we just kind of see this breakdown as he's drinking water of this family and this becomes one of the many nameless faceless henchmen that we encounter in the village so it's kind of showing us how this was kind of a a, um, diaspora almost of these rural boys going and looking for something more exciting and different in the city and um that the wealth there immediately kind of begets them to be a a nameless faceless piece of the evil um and i I think it's most interesting because i I believe that that same boy is the uh individual who is spared the very Mm. end of the film there's this this great moment um that we'll get into later but um what i particularly loved about him being saved is um not just that Sanjuro says that great line about like you're gonna go grovel and eat gruel for the rest of your life with your yeah. parents um but he's also uh rubbing his hand along the uh the wooden structure and the you can see the dirt and the ash get wiped mm. by his hand and it's just this great moment of physicality and tangibility of this is a physical building that is really like on fire or has been burnt down and and he's you know, needing to grab it for strength as as he tries to hovel away from uh, Sanjuro. It's it's an incredible scene, and there's a lot more before it, but I just wanted to kind of give that arc and the rest of that introduction, because I think it's very interesting how historically accurate he is and how focused he is on being historically accurate, because a lot of that gets missed in the culture that we have that is unfamiliar with Japanese culture and history. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I would not describe it as a particularly subtle movie, but I don't know that I mean that um, as a criticism. But yeah, I mean, I think it. I agree, and I agree with that sentiment. 
not a criticism. Yeah. Um, yeah, this little kind of intergenerational conflict that we get right off the bat seems pretty transparent in its, you know, um, uh, idea about a younger generation kind of embracing these uh, uh, ideas of modernity that um, Kurosawa clearly has concerns about um and the conflict with his father is pretty um kind of it kind of explains itself i think right 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 from the get-go yeah and it doesn't really matter because you've seen it or heard it before it's not um the content that matters it's the pattern because Mm. it's it's that diasporic pattern that's occurring all over japan at this point in time rural japan where these farmers are no longer having the same way of life because of the merchant era coming in because the sword is being exchanged for the gun, which we'll get into uh, and all that stuff. And meanwhile, this is a dreamlike um, film where every villain is the epitome of evil. And our dreamlike hero um, is ostensibly a superhero, which I'll have more mm-hmm. to say and ask you about later. Um, as we move through the events of the film. Superhero or, like, super villain? Um, well, I think heroic, since the merchants and their henchmen have no redeeming qualities, essentially, within the film. Mm. I think that it's definitely structured for, like, no redeeming quality to these evils. Um, I mean, God, even the, the one guy's wife, she like yells at this other woman like do you know how much we paid for you get back inside you you're not allowed to die you know mm. like like even the wives here are evil <laughs> yeah yeah those are the ones you would describe as super villains though yeah oh Reason. yes yes I, th- okay. I thought you were asking me if i thought sanjuro was a superhero or oh, a oh, super oh, oh. villain gotcha 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 we were talking about different people got it uh yeah yeah i'm with i'm with you there um cool so yeah, Sandro arrives in town, he uh, gets up to speed on this conflict, starts to um, think about how he can insert himself into uh, this conflict. Um, is the situation compelling for you? How how does this dynamic just play for you, like, dramatically um, as um, a uh, source of tension? Yeah, it wasn't really um, pulling or gripping in that sense. It, it was just like, okay, this is convention. Because, I mean, we've seen so many films rip this film off that, mm-hmm. like, none of it feels surprising. All of it feels familiar. There's no um, grip to it. And then there's the um, the homage to uh, High Noon where we get the, the casket makers thing like that's when i'm having fun but when it, it's trying to be a little bit more like which side he is he gonna go with and how he's playing those sides it's kind of like it doesn't matter which side he sides with first because we know that he's not really siding with them so it's mm-hmm. kind of empty but it's mm-hmm. that's why it's cartoonish because like we already know how the episode of the cartoon ends mm-hmm. the main character doesn't die in the cartoon and that's why it's cartoonish but like the extreme violence and the way that he plays against him or, you know, the chase of Tom and Jerry is what makes it fun. And that's what made it fun. But I, I wouldn't describe it as like gripping or um, thrilling or, or really thematically engaging so much as like an enjoyable thing to watch. And then 
um, especially afterward to try to like process. And then that rewatch of the film definitely informed a lot for me. Yeah. Um, well, I'm pretty much right with you on that front. And that's really kind of like my main uh, takeaway from my experience with it, which is that I find it very formally exciting, but maybe a little bit less uh, compelling dramatically. Um, and that's partly just, you know, I think that's largely just taste. Um, the Western-ness of it doesn't, like, terribly excite me. Um, but I do really sort of admire and just kind of get lost in some of these compositions and the, the, the just the command of that visual depth and, and space. Um, and there's, it, it's really kind of more about my just, uh, engagement with, with the aesthetic more so than the material, um, which is kind of fine by me. I think there is some interesting theme, but there's something about this movie that does feel a little bit like kind of textbook, uh, um, uh, analysis of, of theme and stuff that just feels a little, um, not subtle enough to really excite me, but the, uh, just the craft is, is just is just so expert that you can't deny that yeah i i not only agree but i think i'd build a little bit you said aesthetic i don't know if you're intentionally limiting or if that's just my definition but i i would also say that um the more i watch it the more that mafune's physical portrayal i i've come to really appreciate mm. more because the first time i watched it i didn't really appreciate that performance i was a lot more aesthetically interested in those slats which i'm sure that we will spend three hours talking about Mm. because it's like my favorite thing ever um but as i continued to watch mifune's physicality and his his alternating swagger to his shirking um the way that he plays being injured um the way that he crawls on the ground it's very very impressive um and the way that he seems to work um in symphony with the different layers of the um, cinemascope lens is is very, um, I, I think, next level. I, I don't think that there's very many performers that can cast a glance that is perfectly in focus to another thing that's perfectly in focus mm. and then play that as the camera is turning the corner to show someone else looking at something in just such a physically informative way. Like it almost does feel like a cartoon or like a Satoshi Khan moment because it's so meticulously performed that it, it ends up being the perfect shot. And mm. that's so rare, especially in CinemaScope with multiple um, different focuses being pulled. Yeah. Um, to the first comment about Mafude, I'm, Again, in total agreement there that I think he's great and just a, a ton of fun to watch. And, uh, you know, there's something fun about characters like his who are really charming kind of maybe because of or uh, despite of their arrogance, right? Like his arrogance is ultimately like a little bit of a problem for him as he tries to play this situation. Um, but, uh, you know, like the, the, the number of scenes where he sits down to just eat some food or drink sake while he's kind of pondering his next move he looks so relaxed like he Mm -hmm. is just perfectly at ease while everyone else in this town is hiding behind their their doors and their windows um that that sense of of just total relaxation despite the 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 tension that has totally overtaken this town is is pretty uh pretty fun i completely Mm -hmm. agree i would also say 
uh, hiding behind their shutters. Mm-hmm. Um, so we left off with um, the introduction of the town. Um, I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on the town just because anecdotally it's fascinating. Did mm. you have a chance to watch um, Making is Wonderful, I think is what it was called. The uh, mm. supplementary material, like 45 minute documentary on the Blu-ray. Um, that I did not watch. They go into how the town was physically made. Mm. And um, like it, it was built from the, the ground up, 30 million yen, ground, groundbreaking amount of money spent by Toho. And uh, they, they do it all perfectly. And the, the set creator um, was just exhausted. Mm. And uh, Kurosawa comes in and he says, I don't know, it's just not right wonderful um and then he takes out all these photos that had just been um printed and restored from the 1860s i guess Mm. or you know somewhere in that time he'd he'd gotten them and they'd just apparently come out and he's showing all these different different roads and the uh the foundations and when they built the set it was an entirely level plot Mm. and what they the uh the actual buildings historically had was erosion so the road itself would have these these uh, leaved um, sides, and each building would have these leaved sides from the water coming down off of the roof or or going back and forth on the road. And so what they had to do was they rented at least one fire truck. It, it the uh, mm-hmm. the translation wasn't too clear on the amount or like how exactly this worked out, but ostensibly they got a fire truck or fire trucks. And they hooked up a fire hose or hoses, and they just poured water on those roofs all day long to get the erosion effect. And at the end of that, uh, Kurosawa was like, okay, now it's right. It looks super lived in. Like, I think it's a very persuasive uh, set and um, and place. Um, and I feel like so many of those images, of the wide shots of that kind of empty main street which is really just kind of like that iconic you know western image um that again it's just kind of that sense of depth where you just feel like like it's almost three-dimensional like you can just walk down that road and it can feel so wide at the same time when he frames you know mofune or someone else alone in the frame um with you know the sound of the wind or, or the leaves rustling. I like the leaves. I like seeing the leaves rustle more than I do actually hearing the wind because the, the screen just feels even more alive. And that street can just feel so empty because of that, that sense of, of space in it. Just really compelling um, compositions. No, I completely agree because depending on how he'll do the shot where the fans are blowing from, you'll either get that latitude or that longitude um, in front of the camera. And then whatever else is being i mean sometimes it's an empty street but sometimes it's a fight and sometimes Mm. you know the dust is blowing sideways while we're looking at the the two armies facing each other um perpendicularly so they're they're in line on the screen in a in a vertical slice and then blowing across is um the dust and then i think that we get a different version where the armies are on two different sides and the dust is blowing kind of down towards us while Mifune's Sanjuro is up in that bell tower. And mm. that's just a glorious shot. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some of it is just, just so great because of its, you know, visual storytelling, to put it quite simply. And I think that's something that Kurosawa was kind of famous for. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about High and Low, which is, you know, very famous for its, you know, uh, uh, metaphor of, 
of, of class with this with these um, uh, distances between the the higher ground and the lower ground in this city and here you know you have images that kind of define the narrative in a way like the, the defining image of the movie right is probably Mafune on that watchtower um, as the two sides the two different gangs are about to um, combat each other of course they don't really have the courage to do it um and it's like that is like the dynamic of the film in a single shot that he can really distill uh narrative ideas down to you know individual images is pretty uh unique for sure completely agree and that's like that's another expression of the cartoonishness right like it's hilarious to listen to that soundtrack while these uh sides are, are charging and then cowering backward trembling their sword hands um and our titular character um not in this film, but in the sequel, but still, you know, that's the point of the cartoon is most of the cartoons are named after the lead cartoon character and somehow they're always above the fray. And here mm-hmm. he's literally above the fray, um, in the watchtower. Um, now before that sequence begins, um, the, I believe it's the sheriff of the town. He, he comes out and he slams two clappers together. Uh. And apparently that's how Kabuki theater begins. Um, and I love the idea of like everything outside of those clappers, like not being considered Kabuki theater by Kurosawa. But as soon as he starts his violent sequences or this sequence, which is like played for almost pure comedy, um, he's considering it like this heightened type of, of theatricalism. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, I haven't fully processed like exactly how it is, or maybe it's just a fun thing that he chose to do without a deeper meaning, but uh, there's something there that feels really juicy. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the more like distinctly Japanese aspects of the movie is that character's function as, um, I think they're called benchies, like the, the classic kind of Kabuki narrators. And, you know, not only does he sort of like, He's announcing the time, but he's also kind of announcing when scenes are commencing. And mm-hmm. he is also the one who kind of like catches. I think he's the one who catches Mufune up on the situation, which is kind of yes. like the function of the Benchy, which is to like kind of and tell the story. And tells which side he thinks is going to win. Exactly. And says, don't forget, my payout is one whatever. Which is great because like he's not... Um, He's not just a, uh, you know, information delivery machine. He kind of has a, like an opinion. He's kind of a little slimy. And he and wants I, money. Yeah. And I think like Benji's his historically would opine on stories um, when you would go to Kabuki Theater. And that's why you might go to one Benji over another is because you knew what their style was. And this guy has a personality despite being um, kind oh, of the, the, the mover of the story. Um, I... Yeah, couldn't tell you that actor's name, but I think he's um, one of the uh, cast members who jumped out to me a little bit. I completely agree. Um, Now, there's something that I took note of the third time I watched the film, and I don't know if I like it. And I wanted to ask your opinion. There's a, I think, like a half a dozen moments where Kurosawa and his editor use wipes Mm. to edit. And they changed the scene by doing this wipe where... You know, the scene that you're watching will slowly be wiped away and we'll go to a new scene. Um, I I don't dislike it, but it, there's something that just catches for me there where it's like, I, I don't love this. Um, and I feel like it could have been done better. How, how do you feel about the screen wipes? Uh, are you describing it as like a little ostentatious, just like a little 
unnecessarily showy or something. Yeah, and almost like it doesn't even fit the genre. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I don't know that I have a strong opinion, which I know is boring, but, you know, they, they most definitely jump out. You're like, oh, wow, look at that. That was a uh, pretty striking wipe right there. Um, I kind of like them. I think they're they're just unique. I think that's one of Kurosawa's, like, stamps, actually. I think that's something he does quite a bit. Um, uh, but I could use the word catch. Like, he just kind of got snagged on that. I do like that uh, description. I don't know that I felt that but like i could totally see that it's pretty striking yeah and there's like there's one that like i like actively Mm. like but it's like i i just i don't know um i I just noticed myself catching on it and wondered if there was something um interesting there um something that i do think is more interesting is um the amount of time the camera spends with mfune's back to us Mm -hmm. um you know that's i think not very typical of any westerns at this point in time um there there might be something i'm unfamiliar with but we spend a lot of time watching his actions letting his physicality speak to us and he doesn't have to really perform perform and when he does it's normally comedy um or it's Mm. a dialogue sequence that's just kind of exposition for how we're gonna get into the next harrowing situation Mm. um but, I mean, really, like, the most memorable one is when he's listening to how he's going to be double-crossed outside the door. Mm, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And the uh, that, group like, of women are behind him. Shown. Yeah. Um, for, like, a good, like, played-out, um, like, necessary, I think, good speech reason. Or, like, when he's informing the Cinescope focus um, with his, his own darting glance. But um, the really tight close-ups of just his back, did, did that work for you? Did that give you the impending sense of heroism and alignment with him as the hero or the main character for your experience? Oh, I think it's kind of bold, and I like that, you know, to imagine Kurosawa saying, yeah, let me cast my my famous big star, and I'm going to most, mostly show you his back versus, you know, classic Hollywood's, you know, typical... Uh, close up in a soft glow or something like that. Um, and a nice I, amount of makeup. Yeah, I think that is sort of just fitting with the kind of subversiveness of the film's overall tone. Um, if you don't like how he looks from the back, I guess you're going to be a little bored, but I think it's pretty clever. Yeah, and I, I think that the the kimono he's wearing is like, it's, it's interesting to look at. It's fun to see him tuck his arms in those sleeves mm-hmm. and un, untuck them. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a very pleasant thing. Um, I believe mm. that in that 45 minute documentary, they also discuss how he was looking for the sound and he told his, uh, his composer that he wanted something like a voodoo sound. Um, mm. and I, I just think that's a, that's a interesting anecdote to chew on with how we do get this like in between kabuki theater style, um, and cartoonish, um, compositions that i i guess you could get there by voodoo but like it's interesting that it was in his head as voodoo and like that it came Mm. out in this way yeah um yeah i I love a lot of the music um voodoo wouldn't have come to mind but i guess i can kind of see that um that i mean it just it's uh, it's pretty major and just underscoring a lot of the the tension throughout i think it's a pretty good score yeah yeah, <laughs> no, I have to say that it's pretty great. Um, so he, you know, he spends a lot of time in front of the stew pot with that that restaurant um, owner mm. um, or in keepsman, whatever yeah. you want to play that. Um, 
the slots of his walls, I think, are kind of almost their own character. Um, you could say that the town is its own character in this film. I, I do think mm. that this particular building is also its own character, just because of how much time Sanjuro spends here, the um, the ecstatic moments that uh, occur within there for him, where he's negotiating with people or where he's um, hiding after being wounded and escaping. Um, mm. There's just there's a lot of different good moments, I think. But the slats here open up. Mm-hmm. And you get these great depth of field shots where um, within the restaurant is also in focus. So you're getting multiple layered performances. Um, there's a moment where Mafune is is laughing and he's trying to get the innkeeper to agree with him because these men are drinking tea. And mm. he waits like a minute to be like, mm. it's spiked tea. Oh, yeah, like he, yeah. He just lets it sit there forever. And then he says it's spiked tea. And then... Um, you know, you, you kind of you, you begin to understand what's happening in the background a little bit further. And then um, uh, a character in the background walks towards and begins talking to someone. And Mufune shifts his head as the camera cinemascope is over. And we have in focus the men drinking tea, the men in the restaurant, and then this new individual. Mm-hmm. And it's just, oh, I'm, I'm going to forecast that's my favorite shot of the movie it's pretty good stuff um yeah you mentioned the slats and yeah i'm just thinking about those and all the windows and doors through which these these images are are made and these kind of frames within frames and um yeah it just makes me kind of uh think about the quality of the light in the movie um which is so often really kind of um like sharply defined you know you have these kind of angular shots um there's just this kind of like really precise geometry that seems to be uh like the thing that kind of defines the aesthetic in a way and it just like fits so well with the situation of these two tribes sort of um uh being the these mirror images of each other i think that's one phrase that the uh commentary uh uh uses um just just creates so many really striking images um and uh yeah and this is shifting gears a little bit but um one other thing he talked about on the uh commentary that i thought was really interesting was that he kurosawa was inspired um by a dashiell hammett novel called red harvest i think which was like a detective novel as you would expect from dashiell hammett like I think if you Google it, it literally says that it's often considered the first hard-boiled detective novel. Oh, wow. Um, And it's just so kind of fun for me to think about Kurosawa taking this, like, what was essentially a noir and how this could have been made into a film noir. Um, And in a way, this does have its own kind of play with with shadow and light in a really um, striking way. So there's something interesting about that. No, I I completely agree. There's a few things about lighting. I guess the first one is, I believe it's the commentary. You hear that this nighttime sequence was shot in the middle of the day. Mm. That flabbergasted me. Like, I don't yeah. understand how. Like how? Yeah, like, what do you mean? Say more. I'm looking and this is night. That's not true. <laughs> You're alive. <laughs> um, so that's just an incredible anecdote. Um, for anyone watching um, at home, if you can get the criterion, turn watch it the first time, obviously, as a normal film. But turn that commentary on. And, and in that nighttime sequence, you're just going to, like, I, if you know how they got that, please email the show, um, get a hold of us on social media. Let us know how the heck they got that nighttime shot, because I do not understand it. It is a sweeping 
shot that goes across the road from building mm. to building and everything is cast in this moonlit glow essentially mm-hmm. um secondarily i already um brought up that that post dance kind of sequence um mm. where he's sitting outside the door listening to the fact that he's going to be double crossed um before that is this glorious dance sequence and it's a totally different lighting than we'll see you any time in the rest of the film it's kind of this german expressionistic 1930s um silent era informed type of lighting and um now forgive me if you've already heard this in the commentary but i believe it was in the documentary we Hmm. find out that um the first cameraman um who i'm forgetting the name of maybe it was mia rama miyamura Hmm. um he he was not manning his camera at that point in time. Mm. And uh, the the B footage was rolling. And what he went and did is he went and he stood in front of the lighting Mm. and he moved his arms back and forth to give Mm. this kind of dance, um, not quite strobing, but like a moving um, expressionistic look. You can't see his hands or anything. He's just moving his hands back and forth kind of um, quickly and, and, um, unnoticeably like you can't see the shadow cast from his hand or anything you don't know what it is but it's Mm. it creates this effect of um propellant um Mm. or or just this little extra oomph that i i think uh i really enjoyed the first time and didn't understand what i was seeing and then once i I learned that i just i think it's it's great how many anecdotes there are about kurosawa or his team where one of them wasn't doing their actual job and what they did is they went and they made themselves physically do something deeper within the film. Yeah, you know, you, you think about like the scale of his movies and like the teams he has to have worked with. Like you can only imagine like the anecdotes that are out there about working on these uh, these sets that are so intricate because they the camera is moving so nimbly around them. Um, uh, like... You almost want the documentary that's like more just about like the guy's doing that stuff than what yes. he's doing. Yeah, that's literally what the forty-five minute documentary yeah, was. That sounds about. great. <laughs> and then there's this anecdote about um, how I, I think his name is Miyamura, um, the cinematographer here, had worked with him one time before, but he was at the other big studio, not Toho. Um, and then he, that studio was dissolved, so they had a chance to work together mm. here and. Kurosawa was yelling at him, calling him an idiot, saying you weren't working hard enough. And the the B camera operator, uh, he asked him why Why are you taking this? And he said, "This is a genius director. Mm. You listen to a genius director, ostensibly." And um, then they go into how Miyamura would never listen to any director that he thought was an idiot, mm. um, and like he would just do his own thing regardless of instruction. And so I thought that that was like this great anecdote of like. That And the example that he gave was um, Kurosawa couldn't direct because he had to go, like, help, like, pull the rigging for something. Mm. Um, and so the, the way that you can tell a great director is when it appears that the man has an eagle eye and looked over the whole thing. But meanwhile, he's shoulder to shoulder with the lowest person in his production. Mm. And I, I think that that's just a great anecdote about the man that Kurosawa was, um, since this is kind of also serving as our review of Kurosawa's, um, you know, storied history, not just this one entry um, from his his oeuvre. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, maybe on the topic of uh, him being uh, a, 
a relatively demanding director i guess on that note what's kind of interesting to me is like there's um so cl- like there's there's very clearly a, a command of the craft and a real intention behind every shot and every movement of the camera um but it doesn't feel fussy to me like it does not feel contrived um i think that there is like this um difference between the kind of classical form of directorial control that i think is evident in a movie like this versus um what you see in more contemporary film which which i think can sometimes be a little too fussed over um a little too a little too like detailed in a way there's something about how this um is is so clearly carefully constructed but but with with a a sense of spontaneity to it at the same Mm -hmm. time um and that's partly i think actors as well um yeah just something that jumped out yeah it's like a master counting on his artisans to do their job so that he can improvise his yeah yeah exactly um yeah it's it's really striking um there's a moment where uh sanjuro escapes after being um beaten in battle and he mm. he hides in a chest and then the guardsmen return and they freak out because he's lost. And then as they leave, he scampers very slowly and woundedly out and down underneath the building. Mm. Um, very interesting here. The uh, the camera B um, or the B camera director here uh, and focus puller was um, doing that entire shot. And because of a wall, he actually couldn't turn his camera to follow mm. uh, Mufune's performance as he crawls underneath. So what he had to do was he had to hang all the wires and the camera and everything over this lighting rigging and sound rigging uh, scaffolding thing so that he could um, kind of adjust the camera. And then he had to hold the one wire in his mouth, a wire in each hand, and another wire around his big toe to pull and adjust the focus, but he couldn't actually see Mifune's actions. Mm. So what he did was he followed Mifune during Mifune's walkthrough performance of that. Mm. He memorized what Mifune did and which route he took, and then he just winged it on the fly trying to pull focus for a cinemascope camera that has multiple different you know points of focus. And the sequence he got, like if you go back and watch it, it's amazing to consider one man trying to wield this camera. And he said that that's the only time Kurosawa said he did a good job on the production. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite sequences in the movie, partly because, like, the tension that exists between the two rival gangs, I'm kind of indifferent about because they both suck, obviously. And Mifune is the only one who we we really are aligned, we are aligned with. with. Yeah, so this, uh, this escape where uh, I can't remember the character's name who has the gun is... You know, at each kind of little point in this escape, thinking he might be under the floorboards, thinking he might be over here in the room, um, is easily like one of the more exciting little stretches of the film. Um, and I do like that. Um, it, it's clearly like Mifune has met something like his match in this figure who um, is, is just almost onto him throughout this sequence. He's the one with the gun. Um, it's it's a little more exciting once he becomes more involved and actually has poses more of a threat to him. Yeah, it, it kind of, you know, homages this idea of East versus West where it's the the Ronin versus the, the gun-toting um, Ronin. I think that he was a 
or is a, a ronin himself, but he's wielding a gun, mm. which were hard to get, I believe, in Japan when this film was made, which was like a secondary commentary he was making. And they were also coming into um, Japan at that point in time. Um, so it's, mm. yeah, it's, I, I think that I heard it expressed as uh, he's the, um, that Mifune is the dog or the wolf and the other fellow is the snake. Um, and it was mm. also expressed that Mifune is the cotton and the other fellow is the silk. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I just like those different ideas that Kurosawa expressed about how he views these characters. Um, we should get to that final fight sequence, um, if only to talk about its um, ripple effects. Um, mm. Mifune, um, after this great moment where uh, a building is set on fire and the silk merchant begins to scream my silk is in there. Um, we cut to the uh, the sake merchant's sake having all these holes in it just spilling out and uh, this this crew of men in their underwear scrambling around and falling in this great kung fu hustle adjacent type of slapstick cartoonish comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then directly after that we get a cut to the burnt down roof. And so it's, it's, it's not just comedy and that these evil merchants are losing everything. It's the way that he's cutting from fire to liquid Mm -hmm. to a burnt crisp after the liquid pouring out that, that is um, humorous. But then we, we do get to that, that final fight sequence where he's staring down uh, the silk as the cotton man, or, you know, he's the wolf or the dog staring down the snake. And in 10 seconds, Kurosawa loves this he cuts down 10 men, including mm-hmm. all the running in between them spares one notably, which I discussed earlier. Now this is kind of a superhero event. Mm. One man kills 10 men in 10 seconds. Uh, this ripple effect would go on to, you know, inform Sergio Leone. It arguably informs uh, De Palma's adaptation of Oliver Stone's uh, Scarface. So, eventually that becomes superhero films as you know them. Mm. do you think that that's really the proper lineage or do you think that too much is made about how this affected everything else after it uh i would guess it's probably overemphasized i think uh i don't know in, like how much we attribute the influence or how much we attribute to any one film i think tends to usually get inflated over time it seems that seems to compound a little bit even though there usually is some truth to it um i i just can't help but believe that there are plenty of other um similarly impactful or influential things that are probably under talked about you watch a lot of movies and you start to realize that there are just other things that aren't talked about enough um it's easier to talk about what has been talked about um but that's not to diminish what um, effect it clearly has had at the same yes, time. Yes, no, it, it has had, you know, an effect on, I mean, Sergio Leone and, you know, you, you could argue yeah. that Clint Eastwood is Clint Eastwood because of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an incredibly interesting, rich uh, treasure trove. But I, I also think that it it's a little bit far-fetched to me to be claiming that, like, Yojimbo is responsible for things like Iron Man or, you know, the Suicide Squad or, or anything like that when really... There were comic books originally, and those comic books were informed by other stories, not just film. And eventually, sure, they were adapted, and maybe the director is considering that. But I, I 
almost think it's kind of a lazy way of engaging with this. And it's also kind of an excusatory way of like laying responsibility at the feet of something greater, bigger, older, and esteemed as a classic rather than, um, you know, taking credit or responsibility for the self of, of these new superhero genre movies. I, I just thought it was kind of an interesting in-between sequence because, you know, he is this, you know, dreamlike samurai warrior Ronan who walks in and walks out of a village and leaves nothing but um, death where he cleans it up ostensibly in his wake. Yeah, and I feel like there's always more talk about how this or Kurosawa in general like influenced uh, American cinema and less about like the entirety of the feedback loop and like the influence of Westerns on this and that and the, just kind of the circularity of that. I mean, like, yeah, because I mean, we 30, hear John Ford, he loved and yeah, informed you, a lot of this film. Yeah, you think 30 years prior about John Wayne's larger than life entrance in Stagecoach. Um, it's like, I think the groundwork has was already pretty clearly laid. You know, you're always standing on someone else's shoulders. Um, but this is maybe one of the uh, more uh, uh, obvious points of influence, I guess. Um, but yeah, you know, just back to the to the to the ending as one's rival, one gang's place has got up in flames. The others, yeah, being completely uh, destroyed. The sake is pouring out. Like the situation is completely devolved. I feel like the comedy is kind of draining out at that point. I do think there's kind of a nice like. Um, a tonal shift happening over a few, you know a handful of scenes where the situation's just completely collapsed and i think that's where it's nice that we get this moment at the beginning where um mabune just as easily could have walked the other way and we don't know you know just to what extent did this conflict escalate because he entered the picture um and it's and it's just deteriorated so badly um but then that the final shot where um, or like second to final shot where he is, um, you know, standing over his um, antagonist, the guy with the gun, and he lets him kind of get the gun. But he did, we don't know if he has another bullet or what exactly mm-hmm. he's doing there. Do you think it's just a um, display of, of arrogance or do you think he's just going to roll the dice? I kind of like that shot because. Is this another gamble on his part? He's 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 taking his chances. I kind of like that. Um, or is he is he giving up? Does he think that you know eventually a gun will do him in no matter what? So I cheated and I listened to um, that documentary where the actor who holds the gun talks about the sequence. Mm. Um, and from what I gather, it's like all of that. Um, mm. So the idea of guns always coming eventually to japan is like you know that's a deeper like interesting idea but more present is this idea that like he can't be stopped Mm. and not even a gun is going to get him right now Mm. and he's willing to take his chances because of how far he's come and in fact he's willing to help because he's he's so otherworldly and that's that kind of you know exemplifies that superhero-ness yeah yeah uh yeah i mean i i was kind of thinking about the the role of of a gun in seven samurai which is you know how like the most talented samurai of the bunch in that movie is that's what finally does him in is is a gun um and this uh i I think it's it's kind of a blend like you said of him being willing to to maybe roll the dice in this moment because he knows that in the end 
the samurai's way is over and that the guns are the way of the future. So it's either it's now or later. Yeah. Let's but roll it, the it's dice. also like mm. the Kurosawa's dreamlike hero, like can't be killed even by a mm. gun in Kurosawa's, you know, film, which I, I also like the, uh, you know, the, the stamp of the meaning of the character to him because mm. he, he dreamt up the character first as, as this thing and then kind of introduced mm. the scenario. Um, yeah, yeah, the the shot of um, this fellow hanging from a rope, um, mm. and one of our more particularly ugly um, enemies, and the the deep cinemascope look. Oh yeah, um, uh, of the entire town and the the rear figure of Mafune and I believe someone else is just gorgeous. It's oh, just it's so one good. of those print. That's may- yeah, maybe one of the best ones because it looks like you could just reach out and just like touch the feet, and then Mafune's yes. on like the other side of the town at that point. Again, that just looks like a mile away. That, that's somehow. like I was like Leone. I sneezed and said Leone when I was watching mm-hmm. that that part. You know, because like that's he he doesn't just copy Kurosawa. At his best, he copies the best of Kurosawa and builds on it. Mm. Yeah, um, the. Uh, on the commentary, he kept using the word compression every mm-hmm. once in a while. And those are the shots that I think of where it's like that, what just feels like a football field kind of collapsed into a frame. Um, yeah, really cool stuff. Um, anything else you want to touch on before we begin to wrap this thing down here with favorite scenes? I'll throw out one more quick idea. Probably not a whole lot to chew on. But one thing he, that also came up on the commentary that uh, stood out to me was his kind of personal opinion that this resembles a musical in some way and it's kind of narrative rhythm, um, which I honestly don't know that I pick up on, but I kind of like the idea, um, you know, because I do think of, I think action movies are often talked about in um, relation to musicals, which have um, these things that the movie kind of stops for, an action sequence, um, just to let us indulge in before the narrative kind of picks up again. And there's maybe something to that here with Mafune returning to the inn, stroking his chin as he plans his next move. And then we kind of get going again with the scheming. Um, I don't know. Would you have ever thought of that yourself? I don't think I would have, but I think it's kind of interesting. Um, Maybe, especially right now with coming off of Annette. As, as oh, you know, there you go. Where it's like this very unorthodox operatic musical. Um more so than than normally any other time and i i actually took that note down too and i i'd forgotten to ask you about it it's on my phone and it's one of the few points that i didn't get to um and i was going to ask you pointedly the same exact question mm. my answer though is i i i don't think i would have read it as a musical but i think it can be read as a musical because of how emblematic and thematic tied the score is to the film proper and Mm. the asides that we get the 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 um camera is not quite sergio leone-esque in its greatest moments that it's ever been for leone i think um for leone like at certain points it's like a paintbrush the, the way that he's showing me certain sequences and scenes and images but here we get something very very similar with the you know uh mifune's back and Sanjuro throwing the stick and and beginning to walk down, that it, it does feel like it has the beats of a musical. It does seem like something 
that you could stage and repeat in that way. And it has these these mm. singular moments of the fake battle that's played for comedy, then the real battle that's got real stakes to it with these hostages and then the the wounded main character who was aloof the whole time and literally visibly aloof in the bell tower during the first sequence Mm. um being brought low and then the graduation of that like it does feel like it has this bigger than life repetition to the drama that could be you know defined as a musical which is something that maybe people go and pay continuously for to see on stage yeah i think about that tiny moment we already talked about where it's the only brief moment in the film where the music is in sync with the motion in a really obvious way and it's that i think you already brought it up the guy walking down the stairs and the couple beats of the footsteps with the music that's just like the tiny glimmer of what this film would have looked like had it leaned you know more into that uh, even the dance sequence with the the lighting that i talked about like that feels very um musical ish yeah me for sure the double cross sequence um but then there's the the moment we talked about with the shutters that i keep bringing up with the cinemascope bouncing focus um as it turns you, you know that's less uh, musical and mm. more just bravura but yeah what's your favorite scene favorite shot favorite moment um well favorite, I, i've already gone over it and i just brought it up again it's it's looking through the shutters um but i i will say um secondarily that i think that Although it's differently lit, that dance sequence is an incredibly interesting sequence to just watch by itself. It feels like a direct homage to German expressionism, but from this this Japanese um, styling and, and history, and it's informed by these these you know sex slaves essentially mm. these geisha that are not allowed to go anywhere because we visibly see their their madam mistress whatever you want to call her say you know you cost too much money you get back inside mm-hmm. um so there's there's that interesting communication of like um fascism within comedy at play here and um that german expressionist light i just i think that there's a certain richness to it since this is a post-war film um, mm. that there's a lot to chew on with that particular sequence that I like. Totally. Um, uh, now I'm juggling a couple in my head uh, just because they're Can ones I introduce haven't... you to the dog with a hand? Uh, a great <laughs> moment. Um, well, I'll, I'll at least say the one moment that I did laugh out loud at, but that's partly just because of like how I imagined it in my head, which is when we actually hear him telling the folks what his name is which is him just looking out the window and seeing the strawberry field. And he says, it's the translation of, you know, a 30 year old strawberry field. But, you know, you watch it as an American viewer. You just like, I just instinctively like read that in a literal way where if someone was like, Hey, what's your name? And you said 30 year old strawberry field, you'd probably give him a funny look. Uh, I just, I just actually laughed out loud at that. I thought that was amusing. Um, But yeah, it probably, my, my actual favorite scene is probably, um, uh, the the escape sequence that we already talked about. Um, probably the most like dramatically involved I was with it at any given point. Pretty fun. Yeah, because you're you're playing off of the the external character looking and him hiding, and there's this trepidation, and there there's an actual harrowingness to that moment of the film, which yeah. is not present in other parts. Not as an indictment, but just like a, that's why it's graduated to be so special. For sure. Sure. All right. That is The Bodyguard, a.k.a. Yo Jimbo from Akira Kurosawa. Next month, we'll go over Max Ophel's adaptation of Stefan Schweig's 
Letter from an Unknown Woman. Until next time. And that's another one in the can. Now you don't.